0: Have you ever thought to yourself, I don't belong here, I'm not as capable as they think I am, what am I doing, I'm a fake, I don't know what I'm doing, and so on? Well, if you have experienced this mindset, don't worry. According to simplypsychology.org, it is estimated that 70% of people will struggle with these thought patterns at least once in their lifetime. What I'm talking about and What this episode will discuss is imposter syndrome. With me on this episode, I have Lea Hernandez. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm an
1: assistant professor in the Department of Communication here at Utah Valley University, and I've been in academia in some form or function ever since I was 22. So, Just to give you all an idea of how long that's been, it's been about 15 years. So I am no stranger to the topic of imposter syndrome personally.
0: (laughs) So Leia, in your words, how would you describe imposter syndrome?
1: Yeah, it quite literally feels like this suffocating weight on your chest that you just can't get rid of. And I think the questions you opened with at the start of the episode were perfect because it really does touch upon questions of, do I belong, am I good enough to be here? oh my goodness, what's going to happen when everyone finds out that I'm a fake or a phony and they find out that I don't really belong here? And then all of these feelings cloud your judgment. They cloud your approach to your ability to function in whatever space it is, whether it's in the classroom or in academia more broadly or at work. Um, And then when you think about the cumulative feelings of imposter syndrome, it just becomes downright exhausting for you to feel like that over days, weeks, months, years, right? It's it's just incredibly taxing and also strenuous and anxiety inducing.
0: Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like that's such an important concept to understand for both English and Spanish listeners on this episode. So for me, I'm going to describe it in Spanish for those who are listening mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. may not be as fluent in the English language just yet. El síndrome del impostor es un fenómeno psicológico en el que la gente se siente incapaz de internalizar sus logros y sufre un miedo persistente de ser descubierto como un fraude. That is what imposter syndrome is, and it is what, as I mentioned before, we're going to be tackling on this episode. <laughs> so, okay, Leah. Have you ever had an experience with imposter syndrome that you're comfortable sharing? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, geez, where do I even begin, right? I. It's interesting when you think about academics' trajectories when they graduate from undergrad and they're trying to figure out what their life is going to look like after that. So to give you an idea of the context within I'm working with here, um, as soon as I graduated from undergrad with my bachelor's degree, I started working in news. So I started working in journalism as an assignments editor. And at the same time, I also was going to graduate school full time and working at the university where I was doing my master's. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I was doing um, I was a teaching assistant in my master's program. And then I was also working at a news station. And. I just remember thinking, not so much in the news station, but more so when I got to my graduate program, what am I doing here, right? So I'm kind of like a half first-generation student. My Mm -hmm. mom almost finished her bachelor's degree but didn't, and my dad did finish his bachelor's degree, but... He finished his degree in the 1960s, right? So there was a very big gap between when he finished his bachelor's degree and when I finished mine and started graduate school. So really, no one in my family before that had gone to graduate school. I was trying to figure out the process myself, and there was just so much to it. I felt like a fish out of water. And then when I actually did get into the graduate program at the master's level, I was one of the only women of color there, one of the only— Latinas, because if, you know, y'all hear one of our other episodes before this, I talk there about being Mexican-American and all of my identity crises associated (laughs) with that and like border issues and language and all these other things. But um, graduate school is unlike anything you've ever known, especially with regards to undergrad, right? And I naively thought it was going to be very similar. So I just remember thinking, walking into my first classroom, feeling like They are going to regret letting me into this grad program. I should not be here. I have no business being here. I should just drop out of this and keep working full time in news. And then I remember when I kind of stumbled into my PhD program two years later, that was magnified times 50 million. And Um, there were a lot of reasons. I feel like the imposter syndrome was really manifesting. Again, I was one of the only women of color in the program. And thankfully, I had incredible friends in my cohort who really helped get me through that as well as the support of my parents. But when you're a first-gen brown kid trying to navigate this whole new world in a you know, a setting that's not really set up for you. You're constantly trying to sound smart and learn new words and learn new theories, crank out 25-page papers about topics, and then have faculty members, or some faculty members at least, tell you, this topic isn't really worthy of studying what are you doing with your life. Then you really start to question what am I doing with my life? <laughs> and should I be here? Short okay. answer is no, right? So, yeah, I felt it quite a bit.
0: Dang, Yeah, like, for me, like, um, I haven't yet—I'm still, like, in my bachelor's right now, so I have not not yet gone on to, like, a master's and stuff. But even, like, here, I have experienced that, like, going through my bachelor's mm-hmm. degree— Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that like one example that I can think of was when I first started UVU, I was actually in the dance education program Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because I've danced my whole life. um, And I love it. And I just wanted to like choreograph and I wanted to like be able to teach that. Yeah. Yeah. But when I would go into like the classes um, or like register for the classes and be like present in those classes, I would get the imposter syndrome because I was, like, yeah, like, I was the only person that would have, like, I was, like, from a lower-income family in Mm -hmm. comparison to, like, the other people that were in the program. Mm -hmm. And because, like, even though I love to dance and everything, almost everything that I know how to do was self-taught. Yeah. Because my parents couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of my friends would go to like after school like things. They go to like swimming or dance or like karate or something. But we didn't really have that, especially being immigrants, like newly immigrants at that moment mm-hmm. and like um and like throughout the cause it's not just like the first year that's hard, but it's like the first like several years. Oh yeah. And so <laughs> for me like everything, like I would just like either watch on youtube or i would see a friend do it and i would ask them like how did they do that and like just learn like d- certain dance moves from them mm-hmm. and i would like show up to like my i remember my very first semester like i came and i i don't remember what class this was it was like i think a contemporary or a modern class and um i just remember like it just was very highly competitive in that class but everybody, like, I remember, like, the first day, everybody talked about, like, all the places they've performed, all the experiences they've had, yeah. like, like where they <clears throat> trained, like, where their parents took them to train and stuff. And I was like, well, I trained in my garage because yeah. I didn't have anything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just remember feeling very, like, unequipped to even be in the program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even, like, um, even... Once I, like, kept pushing through it and being in the program, like, it just... Especially, like, it's not just that, but it's also, like, there weren't... Like, I was the only Latina Mm -hmm. in the entire program. Mm -hmm. Like, at least when I was present in there. Like, as a freshman, like, all the other freshmen were, like, very Anglo-American. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, I just remember, like, I I didn't even feel like my own identity was there. And that made it worse for me because I was like, wow, like, not even not even like people who look like me who I can like feel connected to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like because I know like people look different everybody looks different but you always see like you always look for representation especially when you're a minority or like person of color um it's something that motivates you or helps you to kind of stay on your like stay on Mm -hmm. your feet but like being in a dance program and me being the only one I was like oh man so anyways flash forward and I actually uh didn't finish obviously I didn't finish my (laughs) dance education because I as much as I love it is just the program setting wasn't for me but that's like (laughs) because I don't know I guess but like then that moved me to like academia Mm -hmm. so because I've always been a very like very library nerd like in high school like if there was free time like you could find me in the library because and even if there wasn't free time if I just like I don't know like had a free period or something like I'd be in the library Yep. If I got there before school, because sometimes my dad dropped me off at the high school, mm-hmm. and but he had to leave early. So I would get dropped off like at six at, yeah. the, at the school and our mm-hmm. classes don't start until like 7.45, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. So I would just be hanging in the library. Yeah. So I just very much like I could get lost in the library for like ever. Same, same. Well, you
1: know, like, <laughs> your point about representation is so, so, so spot on. Surprise, I'm going to talk about representation because you brought it <laughs> up and I love it. It's such an important part of this context in this space because um, thinking back on it, I had never had a single Hispanic Latina faculty member ever, period, in my life, right? Mm -hmm. And going back to your point as well, I'm not saying that you have to have, like, Latinx faculty members only to thrive, right? But it does help to see yourself represented, like you said, in that form. And I remember when I was in my Ph.D. program, Out of all the PhD students in our department, the the, um, makeup was overwhelmingly Caucasian, Mm -hmm. right? So it was majority white students at a majority white institution. And there were only three Latinx folks in the entire department, all three of us women. And also kind of funny, all three of us were from Texas too. So we all bonded over that and really um, used each other to help us kind of battle that imposter syndrome. Because Mm -hmm. I remember there were times where... Like I mentioned earlier, faculty members would say, oh, we don't think this research topic about your culture Mm. merits academic study or it might not be worthwhile of a full-term paper topic. And I just remember wondering how at that time how much more different the experience would have been and how much better would I have been able to manage my imposter syndrome if there were more people I could relate to, right? Like more people who could understand what it felt like to be – a Latinx person in a majority white institution, just trying to survive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And actually, going off of that, like going off of off of representation and um, like finding a place to connect. Uh, mm-hmm. What role has belonging played in your life?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Belonging has really been everything, and Mm -hmm. I really took it for granted until I went to graduate school. I grew up in a predominantly Mexican-Mexican-American neighborhood. Uh, It was the same neighborhood in Houston that my family had grown up in generationally, like all the way back to my great-grandma, my great-great-grandma's time frame. So that neighborhood holds a very special place in my heart, and since— It was majority Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American, or just majority Latino, Mm -hmm. really – all of the schools I had gone to and even up to college were all majority Hispanic-Latino groups. So, like, I always felt like I was part of the majority. I always felt welcomed. Um, and I always felt like I belonged, even though there were always really funny questions about, oh, you're not really Latina enough because you're not wearing your lip liner a certain way or you you don't have, like, a certain mm. Cholachicana aesthetic, right? Mm. That was really, like, the thing back in the late 90s, early 2000s when I was uh, pre-college age. And then I got to college, and it was the same thing. Hispanic-serving institution, majority Hispanic Latino and Latin American students all over the place. So I was living and thriving. And then when I got to grad school, all of that changed. And I felt like a huge fish out of water because not only was I at a majority white student body institution, but I was also teaching a majority student body that was also Caucasian as Mm. well. So the whole idea of belonging really got ripped out from under me. And um, granted, like... Part of this equation, I think, also has to do with the fact that I do have white passing privilege, right? So um, in certain spaces, people aren't quite sure what my ethnicity mm-hmm. or my background is. And a lot of people will always offensively tell me, oh, isn't Hernandez your husband's last name? And I'm like, oh, okay, here we go, right? So all of these other questions of belonging come <laughs> up. Well, no, really, it's my last name. um, But, yeah, it. I just remember – Thinking about how much of a culture clash that was, even though when I went to my Ph.D. program, it was only an hour, an hour and a half away from my hometown, but it might as well have been worlds away. Yeah, yeah, an hour and a half, but it felt (laughs) like it was a 24-hour drive, night and day. And um, I also remember, too, there was one particularly problematic, colorblind, racist incident that one of my good friends and I, who was another instructor, that we had to navigate— during a classroom setting with students who said several problematic, naive things, and I remember leaving that moment and driving home at like ten thirty at night, and my mom was livid. She's like, "What are you doing? What are you thinking? Anything could have happened to you driving late at night." You know how our parents mm-hmm. are, right? Yeah. And I was like, "I can't take it there anymore," and my mom pardon my language, was like, I will be damned if you drop out. And she's like, I'll go back and hang out with you for a few weeks. We're going to figure this all out. We'll figure out how to make that belonging stick. But you've come too far in your life to drop out now. But I feel like belonging is really the other side of the imposter syndrome mm-hmm. coin, right? <laughs> um, It's... And I'd be lying, too, if I said that it's not something that I still don't deal with even to this day several years later. It's just one of those nagging sorts of things that always makes you question yourself, do I really belong here? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that, Leah. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, like, that was, like, a very, like, it's, like, a you experience. It's, like, your experience. Mm -hmm. And nobody can really, even, like, when we all feel, like, imposter syndrome in our different moments, like, we don't ever get to feel it in the same way that somebody else does because mm-hmm. every, everybody has different factors playing like gender race um even religion can like inter like interconnect with that stuff oh, too. Yeah. um but actually going off on gender um and the looking up a unity podcast kelly on that show mentioned that women who may start out outspoken or confident but who are penalized or urged to tone it down are more likely to experience imposter syndrome. What are your thoughts on that? I think that is
1: spot on. And the gender component is a tremendously important part of it when we think about imposter syndrome intersectionally. Mm -hmm. Um, The concept imposter syndrome, or its earlier iterations at least, first came out in The late 1970s in psychology research, and no surprise here, it mostly focused on women, right? Because Mm -hmm. women were the ones who were having a hard time fitting in in um, corporate spaces, particularly when you think about how women have to navigate the work-home balances, sometimes in ways that um, men's spouses don't have to deal with. And then when you think about that intersectionally with race and ethnicity and other factors, we can see how women of color, queer women of color, transgender women of color, et cetera, et cetera, feel like they fit in even less. And it's even more interesting to think about it here in Utah for those of us who have Mm -hmm. listeners tuning in locally, (laughs) right? Because Utah has one of the worst pay equity gaps in the nation. So even topics of pay equity, gender parity in corporations and in workspaces. That's been um, generating a lot of buzz lately in not only podcasts but also, like, several reports that faculty members and researchers have been looking at because all of it together kind of flashes this signal that says women shouldn't be here, right, or Mm -hmm. women should be felt to feel like they don't um, belong And, you know, in classes (laughs) we've had together and in spaces um, we've been lucky enough to spend time in together, we always talk about several of our favorite Chicana feminist scholars, (laughs) right? So we've got Gloria Anzaldúa, we have Sherry Moraga, Ana Castillo, Sandra Cisneros, like a lot of our favorite um, authors who were really foundational in talking about imposter syndrome back in the 70s and Mm -hmm. 80s, even if they weren't using that formal operational term. And for those of you who haven't heard of Gloria Anzaldúa yet, go run now. (laughs) Google her. Look at the book Borderlands La Frontera. It was highly, highly, highly influential for me um, when I was much younger. And, you know, Gloria Anzaldúa herself was a queer Chicana feminist philosopher from Texas, right? So she wrote a ton about being a lesbian, being a Tehana, being a Chicana, not really feeling like she fit in everywhere. And imposter syndrome was a huge theme of many of Gloria Anzaldua's writings. But like I said, she never quite used the term right. Mm-hmm. There's even a chapter, um, one of her writings called How to Tame a Wild Tongue. And that's why I thought about here in relation to your question about women essentially being demonized or reprimanded when they speak out, when they speak truth to power, when they push back against, uh, like, patriarchy and sexism and everything else. And, it's again, it's another one of those things that contributes to imposter syndrome, right? Because Mm -hmm. if women are already tokenized, women of color, queer women are even more tokenized and then treated negatively in certain spaces, then it makes perfect sense that they would feel like, they don't belong or that they would question why they're there and or even worst might have mental health ailments associated with the imposter syndrome. I mean, just even think about the word, right? Syndrome. It's so medicalized. It's <laughs> so like it, it has such strong connotations and roots And it also and, I, you know, we might talk about this a little later, but it also really draws the focus to the individual without thinking about the systems in place that make people feel like they don't Mm -hmm. belong. Right. So that's also another part of the puzzle that doesn't get focused on as much.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Like with what Kelly said about um, women that are like put down and then like they find themselves in spaces that they have to speak up but kind of like how that internally conflicts with themselves
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I don't know my thoughts went to like like how you mentioned like women of color like Latinx and not just like like how like all of like there's like intersectionality which is like the connections between like different factors that make up that person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so like they like yeah how you mentioned like if they're like lgbtq plus like even that gives them like imposter syndrome because there isn't much representation or people who are from that community who they can like feel empowered by maybe in certain academia spaces Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and then um just thinking about that like um and how Often, like, I mean, most of my professors have been, I would say, female, mm-hmm. and it just happened to be that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and to think, like, almost all of them have talked to me about, like, or talked to all of us in the class, like, about, like, imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, like, opened up the discussion to the class. Mm-hmm. And... For me, sometimes, like, as a student, it kind of is hard to, like, see. Because, like, you see it from your lens, you know? You see, like, all of your teachers being females and all of them being so knowledgeable on so many aspects of, like, what you're studying. But on their end, they, like, don't feel that same way. Um, and, and like, with that, and then, like, having, like, all that belonging that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. My thoughts on that are, like... Yeah, like, I do agree with what, like, Kelly on that podcast episode said, like... Um, especially because, like, I know, like, we've talked so much about Gloria Anzaliwa, like, not just in this episode, but, like, she has been mentioned so much throughout this, like, entire podcast show. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. she might—I might as well just, like, have, like, a side, like, credit yeah. to, like, Gloria Anzaliwa, like, a, like a, like a guest star. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we'll
1: even develop, like, a bibliography you can post with it, right? There's so <laughs>
0: many other folks, too, here who are worthy of mentioning for sure. <laughs> and, like, um— I don't know, like, from my end, kind of, like... I'm, I'm kind of going back to, episode, to question two, I would say. Mm-hmm. But also with this one, because I feel like they kind of... My answer kind of goes to both the last question and this one. Um, when you mentioned about how you were, like... You you started with the imposter syndrome also because of, like, how you're, like, white-passing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also white-passing because I have, like... I have olive skin, but it's, like... I don't know. I, I, I like... There's, like, so many... Forms of olive skin, but I have, like, the kind that's, like, yeah, like, very, like, um... In the summertime, you can tell. Yeah. Because I can. Like, <laughs> Especially really, real quickly. in the summer, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um... But, yeah, like, I would understand that when I would be in places and people would try to sometimes even, like, guess what I was. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they or would, the, like, where are you from? Yeah. What are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, because I, I would have, like, my peers, um come to me and like just oh we we're, were just trying to guess what you were you know and I was like okay okay why <laughs> um and like being told like oh you're not Latina because like you, you look like this you know and it's like well okay we can go a whole nother discussion on that because Latinos don't look just one way amen my so. friend <laughs> amen been there but yeah like um I don't know just thinking about it in my experience like especially when I would I would go into classroom settings where you would think, like, when you finally had, like, a person that was, like, that, that was like you, that was like, Latinx like you, or a like, depending on the term that the listeners, whatever term you prefer, like, Latin, Latinx, Latin so forth. You do you, boo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but especially, like, because I remember having a class where I was me and only one other uh, Latina student, mm-hmm. and one would think okay like that's representation so like they'll feel good now but I think for me it worsened it because prior to it there being two of us I had already been struggling in that one like college class like with feeling like I was part of the class um especially like because I had a very different background than like most of the students because in class a lot of students we talk and like you see connections but I would mainly listen because I had no connections to what people were saying <laughs> yeah. I was like nope I my family never did that No, no. nope or that <laughs> we, we never got the chance to do that but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I don't know like but it's okay like because like now I can try things now you know yeah but in, absolutely but in that class I remember having um just like feeling it out I'm like okay like it's okay like I'll just do my class and be good and then I think it was uh I don't know it was like the beginning of the semester I don't know if it was the first week or the second week but I remember like she joined the class because usually like the first two weeks like people are like leaving or joining Mm -hmm. and then like um but then like that brought in my other side of imposter syndrome because like I was like I don't identify as the majority of this class but and compare, like, I would compare, I don't know, like, maybe subconsciously, like, I was mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. but I also don't, quali- I, I, I don't feel qualified, like, in certain certain moments, like, I'm like, I don't feel qualified to be Latina, you know, which is a very, like, imposter, that's imposter syndrome, too. Absolutely. Because nobody can take away, like, where your heritage comes from. Yep. And so, mm-hmm. but I just remember having, like, that duo, like, happen, duo thing happening, first being, like, a woman in my class, like, a female in my class that... Hadn't experienced a lot that majority of the people in the class had because of the finances that their parents had. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, being a woman of color, not feeling enough of a woman of color. Yep.
1: So. Oh, Oh, I get that all the time. I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have this existential crisis the entire semester when we had Latino communication (laughs) studies together, right? I mean, it was the... The class where I had the largest number of Latin (laughs) A-O-X-S students ever in one classroom. But it was also so beautifully glaring how different we all were under that one umbrella, right? With all of our different heritages, our backgrounds, our ancestries, our linguistic capabilities. And... I remember thinking, too, even when I was younger, how I didn't quite fit in with a lot of my friends and my family members in my neighborhoods because my parents taught me English only specifically when I was growing up because they wanted me to be able to do well in school. They thought it would be what was best for me, and they figured I'd learn Spanish secondarily as I got older. I mean, really, most of the Spanish I learned when I was a child, I learned from listening to Selena music and, like, (laughs) other Tejano performers when I would drive around with my tia and we would go buy cassette tapes when I was, like, super teeny tiny. So, like, even then, my Spanish is not as good as I wish it was. And that became so glaring to me the first time I went to Mexico to visit my husband's family because my Mm -hmm. husband is first-generation Mexican and is fully bilingual, and I'm not, right? Mm -hmm. So the— The imposter syndrome just kept growing and growing and growing because of all of those different factors. And then I remember in our class kind of feeling like an imposter myself, but then also thinking about how nice it was that we could kind of craft our own space of belonging, even with all of our cultural variations under that one big umbrella. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it just – the imposter syndrome just never stops.
0: (laughs) It does. It's like – I don't know. I just remember that one TikTok that's like, it goes on and on. And on and on, on. And on, and on. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, and like, kind of to wrap up like these questions, mm-hmm. um, or to wrap up like this episode, um, how much do you think an individual can realistically do to lessen imposter syndrome if they confront discrimination or consistently experience themselves as the only in the room?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a good question and also a hard one. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, so much of the conversations about imposter syndrome has focused on it at the individual level, right? Mm -hmm. So it's something that individuals feel internally apart from others. It's some sort of experience or trauma that they are just meant to have Mm -hmm. by themselves. Um, And what that does is it really obscures the role of and the responsibility of larger systems in realizing that they need to change, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about why is it that imposter syndrome exists, why do women of color feel it more particularly when they're the token woman of color in a room? Maybe it's because the organization has had problematic hiring policies. Maybe the organization or the institution brought on that woman of color to fill some sort of DEI token diversity role without having the adequate – systems in place to ensure that she feels supported and mentored Mm -hmm. and connected, right? So even here at UVU, right, I've only been here about three years, but in COVID time, it feels like forever and only one week all at the same time. Um, What has really helped me was finding alliances with other women, uh, white women and women of color who have felt the same sort of imposter syndrome, even if it was kind of different, right, experienced in their own individual ways, Mm -hmm. and then building support structures and alliances to ensure that we feel supported and connected no matter what. So whether that looks like book clubs to bring us all together, um, creating some sort of a collective where we can address pay equity issues or Mm -hmm. to where we can address uh, diversity and inclusion related issues as a collective, right? Not as an individual. And then also really just making time for each other to name what we're feeling, acknowledge that it exists, and then brainstorm how we can change that moving forward. Is it a perfect solution for Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome? No, because we would have to totally overhaul all the systems that created imposter syndrome for us in the first place. But are some of these more micro level sort of connections helpful in aiding how we feel? Absolutely. Because I remember here, even when I was here in my first semester, it was fall 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I was not born and raised in Utah. I barely got to Utah like three weeks before the (laughs) semester started. I am not part of the majority religion nor the majority racial ethnic group. And really, Utah was unlike any place I had ever lived demographically because I was born and raised, um, like I said earlier, in Mexican-American community in Houston, Texas. Then I lived in California for six years while my partner was stationed in the Navy. And then we lived in Japan, which was a beautiful (laughs) experience in and of itself. So I never quite thought that I would— settle down here in Utah for the long haul. And here we are. And yeah, like I said, my first semester, imposter syndrome hit me at an all time high. Mm -hmm. And really, like shout out to my amazing friends in the Department of Communication and other amazing women of color I've met across campus because they were really a saving grace here to help me kind of overcome that imposter syndrome in the UVU context. Do you still feel it? sure but is it (laughs) mitigated a little bit more effectively absolutely
0: yeah um for me like when i think about um like just overcoming your imposter syndrome like you're right like there's stuff that is internally but there's also factors that play a role outside Mm -hmm. of your control such as like the discrimination or even if it's not like discrimination also like experiencing like being the only one yeah. Or mm-hmm. even, like, stuff like it. And I don't know, like, my thoughts on that. Um, I think that for someone to tackle their imposter syndrome in a setting that is very against them, mm-hmm. so kind of keeping them from overcoming that imposter syndrome um, for the factors that we named, um, I just, I think, like, there, like you can take it, So far, you can tackle the imposter syndrome, but because of factors that are outside of your control, like, Mm -hmm. you, there there are going to be times that you really, like, are going to, like, feel it and not have to, not be able to do much to change Mm it. Mm -hmm. Um, but not saying that it's impossible, but it just depends on what it is that's affecting it. Right. right? If it's outside of your control, like, like, the classroom setting that you're in or the, um, Or the educational board that you're in or whatever it may be, even outside of academia, like your neighborhood, like um, wherever it may be at. uh, Mm -hmm. I think just focusing on the internal, like, and that is hard on its own. Yeah. But I don't know, sometimes like imposter syndrome happens and we don't really, we feel it, but we don't like kind of like pinpoint the thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like we kind of feel the thoughts, but we don't like. Like, we, we don't consciously feel them in our minds. Like, we feel it, like, within us. Yep. Oh, and yeah. I think sometimes when we start feeling, like, down or kind of feeling the, like those those feelings of imposter syndrome, uh, whether we know specifically that it's happening or not, or we just have these feelings that kind of relate to imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. um, I just think, like, I don't know, like, I think giving the imposter, like, the imposter, like, yeah, it's not even you, it's an imposter. Mm-hmm. Giving the imposter, like, the imposter voice a name yep so like Mm -hmm. if it be like feelings that you start having you can be like oh i'm having or like i don't know like you can even be as silly as i call it like your hater (laughs) (laughs) like um if you're like in a classroom setting or if you're like with friends or if you're like trying like i don't know you you have like a success but like you're not really sure if it's even a success like if you even qualify for that success like those feelings like even if you don't like have pinpointed it yet that it's what's happening Mm -hmm. just be like oh like Uh, haters telling me that I don't qualify for the success. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah,
1: I love that. I mean, yeah, and it's important to remember, right? You are worthy. You are valuable. What you're feeling is not an isolated incident and what you're feeling is the result of a system that was not made for you in the first place, right? (laughs) It is not us. It is the system within which we are trying to survive.
0: (laughs) And closing for this episode, Um, what can we as Latinx individuals do to help and support each other in regards to imposter syndrome? Like, what what do you think? Yeah. I
1: feel like one of the hardest things for us to do is even acknowledge that it exists. Mm -hmm. You know what? (laughs) And the reason I'm saying that is because when I told my mom and my dad that I was going to do this podcast episode with you, both of them said, wait, imposter syndrome guess la palabra right say that again and my mom was like I felt that my entire adult working life and I didn't even know there was a word for it or a phrase for it right like even just breaking down those cultural mm-hmm. barriers and talking about it and sharing how we feel is, The first important step to a path of being able to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. I I hid it from my mom when I was in grad school for a very long time because I didn't want her to think I was a failure. I didn't want her to think that I was giving up or that I wasn't able to hack it in the big world. When I finally told her everything I was feeling, she was like, What do you need? Do you need a nap? Do you need a vacation? Do you need therapy? Like, literally talking (laughs) about it can do a whole world of good. And I've also found, too, like, When you're talking with your loved ones, even something as simple as asking them, do you want me to listen to offer support? Do you want me to listen to Mm -hmm. offer advice? Do you want me to listen Um, just so you can vent, right? Mm -hmm. Even those small conversational cues can help manage a conversation in a way that's most effective for all involved and also signal to the other person that you are being sensitive to and aware of their needs. Yeah, talking about it. First, we got to talk about that yeah. it's there, right?
0: You got to talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. Would you call it your hater? You got to talk about the hater. <laughs> <laughs> the hater in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like acknowledging it, talking to others. I actually like had those like points too. Yeah. But um, adding on to that, like also understanding your strengths and weaknesses Mm -hmm. because with imposter syndrome you start focusing on the things that you can't do Mm -hmm. or what you're not capable of doing and maybe writing down your strengths like maybe maybe you need to actually physically write them down so you can look at it and it can like be physically like present in your life like these are my strengths Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then like if imposter syndrome comes on or if you're feeling it and it's about something that like it's actually a strength for you that you know, like no, like this, I can do this. I am equipped for this because of this, and like mm-hmm. I know this is my strength. Mm-hmm. Um. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> having something to see visually, mm-hmm. right? Something
1: tangible that you can look at and mm-hmm. kind of map out and track. Mm-hmm.
0: And then like even 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 your weaknesses. Um, I know many don't want to recognize the weaknesses um but i think that's also where imposter syndrome gets a lot of flame from Mm -hmm. because it also feeds on your weakness but it it, like amplifies it oh yeah and then with that it like kind of counteracts like you're not worthy of doing this or you Mm -hmm. can't you're not enough for that you know you haven't like done enough to be knowledgeable about this Mm -hmm. um so just recognizing your weaknesses too and then know like when you start feeling weak or when you start feeling imposter syndrome because of your weaknesses um recognize that okay, like, that's a weakness, but it doesn't have to be. So know what you can do about it. Um, But always just, always recognize what your strengths are. Um, And something that, that we could do, like, for those who are not experiencing imposter syndrome, but everybody will at one point. I mean, it's not like I'm telling y'all you're gonna have to. Like I'm not like cursing y'all, but <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna happen. If it hasn't happened in your life, it, it life is changing. Like so many different things happen at different moments mm-hmm. of your life that mm-hmm. at, s- at different points, like you're someone, someone, somewhere is gonna feel inadequate for what they're doing. Yeah. Um. But for each other and this community, the Latinx community, um something that we could do to really help each other um even if we don't know that our our neighbor who's latinx or whatever like or even like our friend or a person sitting next to us like um, uh, even if we don't know like if they're experiencing imposter syndrome like maybe we could like we, we always have conversations mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe like every now and then like have conversations like asking them like which of your successes are you not taking ownership of? Yeah, so that's good. And it's like sometimes you need like that reminder from somebody else, like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I feel like culturally too, we're socialized to not talk about our successes, to yeah. not brag about the amazing things. Because like we mentioning done. it is mm-hmm. suddenly like
0: bragging about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and
1: ask yourself, like, what can I do to contribute to a sense of belonging for this other person? Mm-hmm. Right going back to your question from earlier, because that Mm -hmm. really is such an important theme for this entire conversation, belonging.
0: But yeah, so thank you guys so much for whoever stayed on for this episode. Um, Once again, I am Mari, and I'm Leia. Thanks for being here, y'all. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Latinx of Utah Valley podcast. I will be back next week with a whole nother episode, but before ending this episode, I'd like to give a special thanks to our sound engineer, Meg McKellar, for making the show possible, as well as Kevin McLeod for the music.